0: Welcome back to the Indo-Techno Podcast, Season 3, Episode 9. I'm Alan Heliwal, founder of Gizmo Advisors. Now, we have received a number of requests to invite back onto the Indo-Techno Podcast, a small handful of past guests over the past two and a half years. Given the last several weeks of tumult in the financial markets, listeners have specifically asked for us to invite back on veteran Emerging Markets Fund Manager, David Helper, founder of Prince Street Capital. David last joined us in March of 2021 to share the quote-unquote investor view of Indonesia. Welcome back, David.
1: Thank you, Alan. And as always, a great pleasure to be talking with you.
0: Now, David, when we last spoke... It was early March of last year. The Nasdaq had just crossed 13,000 to hit an historic high. Moreover, on its way to peaking at 16,000, some six months later. Now, fast forward to today, the Nasdaq is down 30% from that mid-November high. And suffice it to say, things are quite different. How do you look at the Indonesian landscape today, given recent events?
1: So in short, I'm still bullish Indonesia including Indonesian tech and also the rest of the Indonesian stock market. And that's because I really think the problems that are troubling the NASDAQ and troubling the U.S. equity market in general are not as dramatic in the Indonesian context. In particular, the government of Indonesia is able to take steps to control inflation, which is really the fundamental challenge for the U.S. market. And also the capital market in Indonesia, is just not as crowded and not as expensive and not as frothy as the capital market in the U.S.
0: That's some sorely needed positivity. Now, I also wanted to revisit some of the material that we discussed on our last episode with you. You specifically treated us to a set of fascinating memories of being one of the first investors in Gojek way back when. Can you share with us how you think about Gojek's opportunity? especially now that it's part of the listed merger with Tokopedia called Goto?
1: Absolutely. So long-term, I'm still very bullish on the opportunity for Gojek Tokopedia, perhaps even more excited about Tokopedia than I am about the ride-sharing business itself. But I think, as always, valuation does matter. We do need, perhaps, to see the stock price consolidate a little more before I would go and outright buy it. I note with interest this morning, there's news of potential capital increase at Gojek Tokopedia, and I treat that as very positive news. In general, for all these tech companies, the fact of U.S. inflation and the change of Federal Reserve interest policy does force them to move up their business plans and look to break even or achieve EBITDA positive or even Free cash flow positive sooner than had previously been assumed. So that is a challenge for Gojek. It's a challenge for Tokopedia. It's a challenge for Grab. It's a challenge for Bugalapak. It's a challenge for Lazada. And it's a challenge for C Limited and Shopee as well. That said, and I think this is the very important point, longer term, the upside for all these enterprises is quite compelling, in particular compared to the Chinese and US comparables.
0: Let's stay on the topic of the listed companies. We have seen two major public listings on the IDX, Bukalapak and GoTo, and industry peer Grab listed through a SPAC onto the NASDAQ. Meanwhile, Buka is down more than 75% from its post-IPO high, GoTo is down a more modest 31%, and Grab is still up 68% from its $10 listing price. What combinations of factors have brought us to this point And how might we think about things going forward?
1: Sure. So equity markets are shockingly not that efficient. And underwriters can sometimes get over their skis in terms of valuation assumptions. And that was certainly a factor in many of the tech listings of the last 18 months. And I think it's important not to look back at where stocks were trading a year ago as much as to look at where they are today and what the valuations are and what the reality of their businesses is. Some of these companies are still a little bit expensive. Some of them perhaps need to raise some more capital as discussed. And some of them are already discounting a substantial amount of misery. And I'm a buyer of the ones that are discounting misery. And I'm holding off and waiting on the ones that still have a lot of market cap and good news in the share prices.
0: I do understand I'm talking to someone who's been through a lot of cycles. So this calm and pragmatic calculus is a good part of the discussion.
1: I was a tech investor in
0: 2000, 2001,
1: and 1999. And one of the most important investments of my career was buying Amazon at around $8 a share when it melted down in the 2000 crisis. I don't think really any of these companies is as cheap relative to the opportunity set, as Amazon was at $8 per share. I think everyone knows e-commerce is a thing now. There's both more competition and still more market cap. But I do think being ready to buy when there is real distress is an important way to generate returns. In an Indonesian context, if anyone remembers 1998, you had telecom and BCA trading at what is, in retrospect, less than one times current earnings. And the Jakarta market is prone, like all other markets, to a certain amount of hysteria, both on the upside and downside. And if I can buy a major tech franchise, whether a number one and number two or a number three, at one times cash, ongoing business plan and several million customers, I'm pretty interested in doing that. Now, that said, none of the companies we're discussing is down to one times cash, but some of them are getting close to about two times cash.
0: Excellent. Now, we do have a pretty long queue of companies that have targeted IPOs later this year and throughout 2023. What strategies do you think these companies need to embrace until the public markets become more welcoming?
1: So, there were two letters that came out from the US to company managements over the last two weeks. One was from Mr. Dara Hasrushahi of Uber, who I think is a very impressive CEO and a real leader. And the other was from the Y Combinator organization. Both of these groups basically told their portfolio companies and their employees that they needed to change their business plans. And I think this is extremely relevant for company management in Indonesia and for startups entrepreneurs in Indonesia respectively. The key thing is when capital is incredibly cheap as it was during COVID and the first couple of months after COVID, it incentivizes management to go for growth at all costs and to ignore short to medium term cash flow. As capital becomes more expensive because of the inflation problem in the U.S. and the change in federal reserve policy, company managements have to adjust their business plans and stop going for growth to the same extent and be more mindful of the cost of capital. So as Dara Uber points out, in his business, he was essentially targeting EBITDA and he's been told now he has to target free cash flow. And all these Southeast Asian tech companies that we mentioned are quite far from free cash flow at the moment. So that management change and strategy change needs to get factored into the market before we can see a short-term bottom in ASEAN tech pricing. That said, it doesn't take much for any of them to actually generate free cash flow. They have to accept perhaps a little slower growth, perhaps exiting some businesses that aren't that viable, perhaps cutting costs more aggressively than they previously had. And this is really where management proves their capacity. So a really good manager in the current situation, I think, can unlock a huge amount of value in all the companies we've mentioned. But of course, if you don't get the memo and if you keep down spending your cash and run out of money, you're going to wind up working for someone else.
0: Right. So follow-up question there. Are you seeing evidence that this has indeed had a disciplining effect on some of the listed companies we've talked about? I mean, some of the highest profile forms of predatory competition we see in Indonesia amongst C Group companies, Gojek, Grab, Tokopedia. Are we starting to see more discipline? Are we starting to see less damaging promotions? It's incredibly early. Dara's email
1: was two weeks ago. Why Combinator's email was a couple of days after that. I would not expect to see a change in, for example, subsidy pricing for ride sharing and e-commerce to be reflected that quickly. But what I can see is how companies are talking to the capital market. And you notice that Grab and GoTogo both appreciated quite a bit in the last couple of sessions. And I think that's the market looking forward to an Uber like strategy shift from those organizations. Now there's plenty of room for them to disappoint and it may well be that they'll continue to subsidize super aggressively and that there'll be a spoiler, perhaps Lazada, for example, who could continue in a burn to grow business plan for another couple of months. But what we're seeing in the equity market is very interesting because if you Double down and triple down on burn to grow, your stock continues to plunge. And some mutual friends of ours exhibited that a couple of weeks ago, as perhaps you've seen. And if you signal that you're going into an austerity phase, your stock quickly goes up. I think part of that is the fact of short selling in the tech sector, where short sellers have very little patience for pain, particularly after what happened with GameStop a couple of quarters ago. And part of that is just the fact that there's so much attention on these companies. Analyst report after analyst report, investor meeting after investor meeting. I have friends who run companies that have nothing to do with technology and they're still having trouble getting an analyst to write research about their business, even though they have much more cash flow than any of the people mentioned. above. But that capital market discipline, I believe, is starting to work its way through the Indotechno landscape, and that makes me bullish.
0: Let's look at another part of the Indotechno landscape, which is the private startup side of the spectrum. What are your observations there in the wake of all of these eruptions in the public markets?
1: So the Y Combinator email is more relevant to the private side than Uber email is more relevant to the public side. The Y Combinator email was very clear, and this from a very aggressive firm that has gotten perhaps 500 investments around the world. They basically said, run your business as if you're not going to get any more money. And that would be my recommendation to every startup in Indonesia, including the Series B guys, but certainly the Series A and the seed guys. You have to assume that capital will be much more difficult to come by going forward. It doesn't mean... You don't do it. It just means you adjust your business plan to reflect that you're not going to get money poured on top of your head the way you used to be. For me, as an investor, that's good news because it means that where I do deploy capital, I can expect a less competitive business landscape. And in an Indonesian context, one of the best examples here is digital banking. So how many digital bank licenses are flapping around in Indonesia now? certainly more than 10, and I think 15. And I've certainly been approached directly by at least four and not approached by several others that I know are out there. So it's unlikely to me that there will be 15 profitable digital banks in Indonesia. There might well be three or four. It's a big economy. But that's an excellent example of how a breakdown in discipline in the capital market created a too-competitive landscape for what is fundamentally a revolutionary and very compelling business plan.
0: Fascinating illustration there. Let's go back to that entrepreneur. He or she may still be needing to raise that seed round. What is your advice to that person?
1: So you need to go straight ahead and tell your investors how you're going to make money. Don't talk about TAM. Don't talk about GMV.
0: Don't even talk about revenue. Tim, standing for total addressable market and GMV being gross merchandise value. Yes. Try talking about profit and then back up
1: from there toward these other indications like revenue and GMV. If you can't do that, I think you're probably not going to get the money. And I'm excited if somebody has a profitable business plan. Valuations should be a bit lower, which is good for me. But most importantly, the competitive landscape should be less intense.
0: Now, David, are you seeing more and more companies indeed raise down rounds or basically financial rounds which value their companies at lower valuations than in previous rounds? Certainly, in my book, there have been
1: several of those transactions, but there have also been a few companies that have managed to raise at higher rounds. Mostly, it's a question of how high the previous round was financed at. And in particular, anyone who did a financing round in the third or fourth quarter of 2021, if they need to raise money, you just have
0: to assume it's going to be a down round. Understood. So at this point in time, David, because you are on both sides of the fence, would you rather be a public markets tech investor or a private VC investor in Indonesian tech at this moment?
1: The answer is yes, I would rather be a public markets investor or a private VC investor in Indonesian tech at this moment. No, seriously, there's plenty of opportunity in both of those asset classes in this country. It's still very early days for Indonesia's development. It's still much less developed than Japan or China Korea, Taiwan. There's less market cap Relative to GDP, than you have in India or Europe or so forth. So, Indonesia's best years of relative GDP growth are likely ahead of her. Indonesia has underperformed China on a GDP basis for an entire generation, really since 1997, which is 25 years. Indonesia has grown slower than China, raised less money than China. Seen the stock market lag, China and so forth. I believe that we are now at an inflection point in that, and that going forward, China will grow more slowly. If China is going to grow more slowly, it's a no brainer. Both Indonesia and India are going to get a lot of the capital that has previously gone into China. And I remind you, for example, that Ant Financial alone in the venture market. Raise more money than the entire Indonesian ecosystem and Paytm in the Indian IPO market raised more money than all the Indonesian tech IPOs combined. So we're still fundamentally less overcapitalized than the U.S., less overcapitalized than China, less overcapitalized than India, and we have a lot of opportunity in the country. Doesn't mean that each and every single company is a good buy. There's still plenty of companies that are probably not going to be there in five or 10 years, but in particular for Indonesia-based investors, how many of you own QQQ or FANG or Tencent or Alibaba in your portfolios? You don't live in China. You don't live in the U.S. You live in Jakarta.
0: Have a look around you in Jakarta at where you see opportunity. Excellent points. Now... David, returning to some of the topics that we touched upon in our first discussion last year, you also offered your thoughts on plans for a fully integrated electric battery slash EV manufacturing chain in Indonesia. A recent stream of pictures on social media of Jokowi visiting Elon Musk at his Texas plant led me to wonder what the latest is on that front.
1: So Jokowi and Elon are not the latest on this. The latest on this is there are now test models for local Indonesian made electric motorcycles. And there are several competing brands. I don't think all the brands are going to see profit. Perhaps we'll see some consolidation in this, but this is a serious business. The bikes work. I know people who've ridden the bikes and charging stations is going to be an issue. And a number of other parts of the supply chain for this industry still await us in terms of investment and return. But this is for real. The battery-grade nickel factories are already up and running. Interestingly, the Philippines had one for the interdictions. But my understanding is we now have at least one, if not two battery-grade nickel clients operating. What this government has done, and I give credit both to Jokowi and also, of course, to the Minister of Investment, Lut Van Jaitan, is to leverage Indonesia's resource wealth into significant industrial development. And this is, in fact, globally significant because you don't see a lot of this around the world. Traditionally, the Washington Consensus says that if you have resources, You should export your resources, generate foreign exchange, and import manufactured goods. And that certainly is the business model that Saudi Arabia pursued. It's the business model that Russia pursued. It's the business model that Venezuela pursued. Jokowi and his government, for better or worse, rejected that Washington consensus, got sued by the World Trade Organization for the domestic market obligation, DMO, and... That policy shift has paid off in the form of faster GDP growth, a foreign exchange surplus in trade with China, which is a very rare thing, and now forecasts that GDP growth in Indonesia will be faster than GDP growth in China for the next 10 years. There you have it. The photos of Jokowi and Elon Musk are certainly interesting, but to me, the photos that are much more interesting are the pictures that my friends are sending from way to bay and Morwali where you see essentially industrial cities have gone up where there were previously fishing villages. Wow, And that is reminiscent of what we saw in Shenzhen and Pudong in China 10 and 20 years ago, where out of nowhere, these new cities sprung up.
0: I remember those images very well in my early career covering China. Now, David, what are your favorite categories to invest in within Indonesia currently? I'm not buying digital banks
1: at the moment. And I think there's a lot of opportunity in the ag tech space and in energy transition globally. I've been taking a lot of meetings with fertilizer companies and seed companies and people who are thinking about ammonia. And these are still early days, of course, in the Jakarta context, but I think they deserve more attention than Wall Street is currently giving them. But I'm not selling my Indonesian e-commerce and fintech exposures. And I just think given what's going on with the Ukraine war, it makes sense for investors to respond to this challenge by helping Indonesia become more self-sufficient in food and helping Europe become more self-sufficient in energy.
0: So some really good reasons to look back into the more traditional industries for investment. Is that correct?
1: Or into startups and tech companies that are addressing the challenges of traditional industries. There's not a lot of rice production represented in the Chicago Stock Exchange. There are one or two companies. But I think the opportunity in next generation fertilizer, for example, is very interesting. And even in biotech seeds. Unfortunately, on the IDX, you don't have many options in those sectors yet, but that's a good reason why our friends in the startup community should be starting to think about agriculture. On my last visit to Jakarta, I met a guy working on next generation shrimp farming, and that's one example of this, and I'm sure there are lots of other examples.
0: Now, David, you and your team popularized the term DigDAC, which is short for digital decolonization. In short, it refers, in your words, to the technology networks that are being built, whether it's Alibaba, Amazon, Tencent, or Facebook and Google in the U.S., that have formed increasingly kind of colonial relationships with customers, programmers, regulators, and others in the developing world. How has this thesis at Print Street evolved?
1: It's evolved with the launch of a fund, as theses at Print Street tend to evolve. But also, I think it's increasingly consensus that this is going to happen and it needs to happen. And it's by and large a good thing. I'll give you an example of a company that you know very well, C-Limited. C-Limited has pulled out from France. And the market treated that decision favorably because it was just a bit too far away and too much money and a bit too foreign culturally for that organization to compete and win in that country. That is a local Singapore ASEAN example of the same trends that we observed when Uber sold out of their ASEAN business and merged it in with Grab or when Facebook took the decision to invest in Ticotoco. Again and again, I see cross-border global empire building tech companies retreating. I see those same cross-border global empire building companies taking minority positions in strong local tech companies. Reliance Geo is a great example of this as well. In India. And then I see local companies gaining market share against these cross-border competitors. It doesn't mean that Google isn't going to make a lot of money from their cloud business in Indonesia. It doesn't mean that Amazon isn't going to sell a lot of products into India or Singapore or somewhere like that. It's just incrementally, I see a change in how digitization in particular, but also the energy transition and also the agricultural revolution are going to be expressed in the next couple of years. Understood.
0: Now, David, when I reached out to you several days back to set up this session, you were, I believe, commuting between Egypt and Turkey. So what are your favorite global themes in DigTech currently, above and beyond the ones you just mentioned?
1: In Egypt and Turkey, both local e-commerce and fintech landscape is substantially less crowded than it is in Southeast Asia. So I still think there's a first-generation tech investment return in those markets in ways that perhaps there is not here in Southeast Asia, but more significantly Both of those countries have a huge amount of return to be generated from the energy transition and the agricultural transition. So those same themes that I find so interesting here in Southeast Asia, I think, can be expressed there. Plus, if you will, the legacy themes of e-commerce and fintech, which are still early days there. Both countries have challenges that Southeast Asia doesn't have. They both have shooting wars going on not too far from their borders. They both do, did a lot of business with Russia and Ukraine, which is very disruptive. And while they both have strong leaders, per se, I think the government capacities in some ways aren't as robust as what we see in Indonesia. I've been really impressed with, in particular, how Jokowi's government has responded to the field price challenge. The field price challenge. Yeah, oil prices have gone up. Indonesians are not well set up to face higher gasoline prices, particularly at the low end. Eric Toghir, the coordinating minister for state-owned enterprises, came out very clearly with a statement on this. I wouldn't mind seeing some other countries exercise that kind of decisiveness in facing this challenge.
0: Fantastic. David, once again, a pleasure having you on and particularly sharing what this time is, frankly, a calming set of observations at a time which seems pretty dreadful. Thanks a lot for joining. It's not that bad, Alan. The country is doing great. It's going to continue
1: growing. There's still plenty of opportunity and socks bounce around us, you and I both know. So thank you. My pleasure.
0: All I'll cut my medications then. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have with us about the Indo Techno Podcast.